All right, it's the fan pregame on a Friday. We'll finish the week out strong. Justin Cuthbert and Donovan Bennett uh, here today. Ailish off till about Tuesday next week. We're up on Sportsnet, Sportsnet 360, Sportsnet 590. The fan for the next 90 minutes. A big nostalgia night at Scotiabank Arena and on Sportsnet with Fred Van Fleet returning to Toronto for the first time. Unfortunately, though, he'll do so in uh, street clothes. A strained adductor will hold him out, but we'll touch on a special night uh, with Smith and Jones in about an hour. Yeah, and another busy night in the National Hockey League. Three games, two regional games on the network. Uh, we're going to talk to Frank Sorvelli in a moment to get teed up for those ones. I'm looking forward to it. And hey, Super Bowl 58 this weekend. One yes. half of the fan check down here in <laughs> studio. Uh, we'll go back to Vegas, though, one more time. Chris Rose from the NFL Network in about a half hour on Chiefs and Niners. But first, Fred returns home tonight. One of the great Raptors success stories will be celebrated. We know it will be celebrated because there's a little bit of a precedent set here uh, for returning Raptors. And of course, this is one of the greats and one of the major parts of the 2019 championship run. Donovan, expectations for tonight? For Fred to be in the fields, maybe a little teary-eyed when they play the tribute video. And I, I do have a campaign against tribute videos. Okay. I feel like They've jumped the shark. We're giving them to people. Pierre Engvall will do that for been, people. <laughs> yeah, true. We've, we've given them to people who've been on a team for 18 months. But Fred certainly deserves one. Lindsay Dunn of City News tweeted out the photo of the big screen in Jurassic Park, a tribute to Fred. So I'm expecting a lot of Van Vliet jerseys. It, I want to know for you what his legacy is. Because it's wild. He went from being the guy fighting for the last roster spot with Brady Heslip. Mm-hmm out in Vancouver and Victoria, to being one of the most highly paid Toronto athletes ever when, when his career is done. It's just wild. Yeah, I, I think I lump him in with Pascal Siakam in some ways, but I guess that's not really fair. I mean, when Pascal Siakam was traded, I, I feel like he embodies the Raptors, uh, not, not culture, but what the Raptors had to do to be successful, where it's like, hey, we're going to unearth a talent that maybe no one else is looking at because he plays San Diego State and we're going to develop him and draft him and overlook the fact that he didn't play until he was 17, 16 or 17 years old. Like that seems like the quintessential Raptors story for me. Uh, but Fred embodies a lot of that as well. Maybe it's part, maybe it's hand in hand, those two. Someone who had no promise of having an NBA career and becomes an NBA champion and makes more money than anyone would have ever expected Fred Van Vliet, uh, I think, included, right? So uh, I think in in a lot of ways, that's it, it, it sort of embodies, you know, the Raptors story, what the Raptors want to be, what the Raptors were when they were at their best. But maybe it's a little bit different in that, Pascal wanted to be here, right? Like, it, it, he it, he would have signed that contract. And I guess they would have signed that contract, too, with Freddie. But Freddie, it was about, I'm betting on myself, and I'm going to I'm gonna help, or this is going to be the launch pad for me here in Toronto. But at the end of the day, Fred is is above everything. When I, when I felt like Pascal really, really wanted to be here, would have taken some concessions in order to be here. Either way, splitting hairs, and that's not a knock on Fred at all. But those two, probably the guys who embody what it meant when the Raptors were at their best. No question. And they embody that because they went from G League champions mm-hmm. with Raptors 905. They were in the G League when it wasn't the G League. It was the D League. And they go to NBA champions and now they go to greener pastures. And he, to your point, hit it big in free agency. Pascal will do that this offseason. We talk about you know, leadership and you know, motivation and you always hear, speak it into existence. Like, well, that's nice. Like, I could walk around and say I want to do something, but it might not pan out. Fred Van Vliet is the greatest example of speaking it into existence. When he was 
still like a bit player comes out of this clothing line, his swagger, his line, bet on yourself. Like, oh, that's cute. You got rolling the dice logo, whatever. Literally, that's how his career has played out, both on the court and then off the court. And the other thing with those two guys, how many campaigns were they in off of the court? They were the go-to pitchmen for five, six, seven years because I think they were so likable and relatable. Yeah, I think Freddie might be the ultimate get it while the getting's good guy. Yes. Like he immediately knew how to take advantage of whatever was put up in front of him, right? And and the the success and the growing into his role and becoming an all-star and all that like helped pave the way for more opportunities. But when one was at his feet, he took advantage of it every step of the way. And of course, that all culminated in taking $100 million plus uh, from the Houston Rockets uh, quickly because Frank is on the line. What is the line for tributes for you? Like, is there something, is it something semi-arbitrary or it's like five years of service or is it you got to win a championship? Do you have to be top 10 in certain categories? Like you can kind of, you get yourself boxed in a little bit doing that or is it like a Hall of Fame thing where you just know? It is like what the Supreme Court said about pornography. You know it when you see it. Okay. And I believe, like, you know, it's not starter or all-star or champion. You just, you just know it. Like, are people buying the retro jersey of that person 15, 20, 25 years down the line? If yes, then let's give him a video. If not, then let's keep it moving. So Pierre Engvall, no. Fred Van Vliet, yes. yes. Uh, definitely. Uh, it will be a worthy tribute tonight at Scotiabank Arena with Fred Van Vliet back in town with the Houston Rockets, albeit, again, in street clothes. Okay, let's bring in our first guest. Of the day, Frank Saravelli of DailyFaceOff.com to chat a little bit of NHL. What's happening, Frank? How you doing, guys? Uh, we're doing pretty good. Uh, you know, we're still start digesting NHL All-Star Weekend a little bit. Might have had uh, a little bit of an impact on, on the hosts of this show, uh, more spe- <laughs> most specifically. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, it's time to really turn our attention to the fall or to the, you know, uh, the final months of the season. And I guess more specifically, the trade deadline for you, Noah Hannafin rose to the top of your big board this week, Frank. Why is Noah Hannafin number one in your eyes for you? It's a pretty easy answer because he's the premier rental defenseman that would potentially be available. And I don't have any firm indication yet that the Calgary Flames have engaged in any substantive talks about Noah Hannafin. But when you consider how this has played out to this point, a massive $60 million contract offer sitting on the table since October, and it remains unsigned, you'd have to think that at this point, unless a signing somehow materializes in the next day or few, that what we're looking at here is a guy who must certainly be on the move. Go back to Craig Conroy's you know, introductory press conference. Asset management was something that he talked about in Calgary, not letting players walk for nothing. When you have a player this solid on your back end and a really thin market, the Flames have already capitalized with Elias Lindholm at the center position, and now you've got potentially the two best defensemen on the market. You've got it cornered if you include Chris Tanev as well. Okay, I love it. Now give me a landing spot or a couple destinations teams that potentially could look to be aggressive are we talking la are we talking new jersey are we talking tampa given their lack of depth where do you see his potential landing spot yeah donovan it's a good question and i would say um la is probably not one of those teams i think they're pretty happy for the most part with their defense 
Um, and in fact, they've had, they had to call back their defense. Think back to last summer, Sean Walker, another trade target. He was on the move to Philly. And then you had, of course, Sean Dersey traded to Arizona. Um, but there are, I think that's the key question when it comes to the other teams that you mentioned, Tampa, New Jersey, especially with the injury to Sergachev, how aggressive will the Lightning be? Julian Bruisebra has been more aggressive than anyone as their GM. But then you look at New Jersey and they're right on the fringes of the playoff chase. They're a team that, you know, is fallen short of expectations by way of both injury and asking too much of some young players this year. Is this their year? Or do they take a step back and say, look, Dougie Hamilton's out for the rest of the year with a torn pec muscle. We didn't properly evaluate all the defensemen that we were missing with Damon Severson and Ryan Graves gone. And while we're happy with what we've gotten from our young guys, our goaltending is still an absolute mess. So the New Jersey Devils and the Lightning, both of those teams, I think that's kind of the soft market of, is is their season is this the year to to load up to be that team that is super aggressive at the deadline we don't know the answer to that yet but i think there's certainly a lot of question marks that might get in the way of that it's fascinating and jersey is fascinating because i'm trying to figure out are they buyers or sellers should they be you look at them they've got cap space you mentioned doug hamilton and LTIR, they could be aggressive. They need a goalie. The Metro is wide open. When you're looking at the market, trying to find out how many teams are going to be uh, buyers, what comes to mind right now? Well, we've already seen a couple teams step up and act, right, in Vancouver and Winnipeg, and I don't think either one of those teams is totally done yet, but there's still plenty of teams left to be aggressive. The problem for some of them, like Boston and Florida, for instance, is... They don't have very many assets to go around. Both those teams were super aggressive in past deadlines and now probably have to, you know, fall in line for some check down pieces, even though they've had really strong teams this year. The New York Rangers, another team, Chris Drury has been ultra aggressive since taking over. Uh, they are in a spot where they can spend. Um, and so I'd expect them to be one of those teams in the mix, Carolina, to continue to try and uh, get better and also fix some of their goaltending. Out West, we've got Edmonton. That's the no-brainer. The Vegas Golden Knights, uh, they potentially have some cap money to play with. And they're a team that, if you look, has always tried to improve. Uh, Colorado's in that category. And then there's one other team that I think is kind of, you know, maybe in the middle. And that's the Dallas Stars that I think they really like the team that they've assembled. They've been consistent all year long in spite of some key injuries that they've had to Haskinen and Jake Ottinger. And yet they're right up there towards the top of the conference. So there's, you know, probably five to six teams that are still on the hunt to, to improve dramatically. And outside of that, you're dealing with a lot of sort of mushy middle. Are we buying? Are we selling? Are we in the mix? Are we out? And that's sort of what we're still waiting to develop here over the next 29 days. You guys mentioned Tampa uh, when talking about Noah Hannafin. I mean, it seems like they could be mushy middle uh, caliber team or at least uh, they could fall into that uh, into that space. I mean, I'm not surprised that they're uh, maybe potentially still in buyer's mode, even with a tough season, tough-ish season, and the injury to Mikhail Sergachev. But is there any any possibility that Tampa just realizes this might not be the year, waves the white flag, and actually moves some assets into into the market and, and sells before the deadline? 
Well, that's the other tough part of the equation for Tampa, Justin, is that they don't really have a lot to sell off. There's no sort of obvious pending unrestricted free agent. What what you're talking about is a larger, more seismic hockey deal that probably isn't going to materialize between now and then. If you're going to make significant foundational changes to your team and everyone's asked the question, what happens with Steven Stamkos in the summer? It's better off to probably try and address that then. I think just to play devil's advocate on what I'm saying and what you're saying, and I think this actually also brings it back to the Leafs, is look at some of the pieces that you have right now in front of you that are healthy. And if you're the Leafs, look at your four guys that have carried your team on their back to this point this year. And then look around at the rest of the conference and say, as you know, as much as we're not, you know, squarely, you know, at the very top of the standings. Do any of these teams that are in the rest of the conference really scare us? Is this the most wide open that the East has ever been? If you're the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Toronto Maple Leafs, when you're in, are do you have just as good a shot as anyone else? And I think right now, the answer f- to me is yes. I, I think any one of those teams, you know, Boston has its flaws you know, Florida plays a, a totally different, you know, uh, style that they're all over the place. The Rangers have some of their own question marks. Same thing with the Carolina Hurricanes and net. Like, I'm not looking at any team saying that's the dominant favorite and that's the team that we've got to go out and chase. That doesn't really exist in the East, so it might also change the way you think about the playoffs. Yeah, that's a good point. It's definitely something that both the Maple Leafs and Lightning can fall back on. Just, you know, chip in a chair stuff, get in. It's not that strong uh, in the Eastern Conference, and hey, we can make uh, something happen here. But if you are one of... Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, maybe we, you know, maybe if you look back on the recent history in the NHL, take a look at the last two teams that have won the Cup, they didn't spend their Mm first-round pick. Maybe it's not the sexy big name splash that you go out and make that puts your team over the top. I thought you were going to go with Florida there because Florida, of course, goes all in two years ago uh, and they suffer some consequence of that, at least in the regular season last year. And they come They're back. They're suffering it now. And, and they it, don't have assets to trade. They don't have any. That's what I was going to ask you about. Like, even if they, you know, if there was anything they could part with, like, is this the time where they just don't learn from their mistakes and do it all over again? Or do they look around and think, hey, there's not much else going on in the Eastern Conference. We're pretty damn good right now. Do we just do as the rest of the Eastern Conference maybe plans to do and let's just get into the playoffs and see what happens? That's the path I would take. I'd you know, I'd be looking at depth additions, you know, for mid-round picks, prospects that you're not really sold on and and take it that way because, you know, look at some of the teams that have loaded up Boston last year, all that they spent to get Orlov, Hathaway, and Bertuzzi, that didn't work out. They traded, you know, first round, multiple first round picks. You look at the Panthers the year before, uh, you look at what the Leafs have spent on Ryan O'Reilly and Nick Felino over the years, not, you know, ultimately in the end of the day, difference makers in terms of their playoff success. To me, there's more history to suggest that it's not prudent to spend those assets. And if you're going to improve, and this is part of a page out of Brad Tree Living's playbook, is you you make your changes in the summer. He's said that multiple times now, that the deadline isn't really the time to change your team. And you think back to last year's Leaf team, how many new faces did we see? Eight that came in over the deadline period that totally changed the look and feel, which you think could be positive at times, but it's also a lot of adjustment required. 
And so we can blame the Leafs now on a poor deadline or a boring <laughs> deadline because of what they did last year and what it did not That's amount okay. to. Oh, man, don't do that. Don't do that. We don't need those tweets already. Uh, we still got some time. So, I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, you, you look at the Leafs, you look at Tampa, and I wonder from the discussions you're having, the conversations around the league, what level of fear or respect is there? Tampa specifically, I mean, Justin might be their best third defenseman at this point. The depth isn't there. How much, when you look at them, is it, you know, the history, the logo, you know, the, the big names and not necessarily what they've, they've put on the ice because the Leafs in Tampa are, are somewhat of a real comp in terms of how they're playing and maybe not at that upper echelon as we saw in the last couple of years, but maybe closer to the middle of the pack. Yeah, I think there's a lot of respect and, and rightfully so. The two Stanley Cups stand out. But I also think no matter what, there's still a fear factor that exists when Tampa gets into the playoffs. And it's their core because... Yeah, Sergachev's hurt, but guess what? They still have Victor Hedman on that blue line, who's had a great year, by the way. And they've got up front Nikita Kucherov, who's you know running away with their team lead and scoring, and Stamkos, and some of the other depth that they have, Braden Point. And then in net, Andre Vasilevsky. I mean, you're talking about foundational pillars to a team that you know is not just among the most successful of the salary cap era, but it, they're bona fide stars at each of their positions in their own right. And so I think that demands respect and fear. And I think the difference is, even though they may be close in the standings, the Leafs don't have that same cachet outside of the forward position. And, you know, that's not news. We've known that for a long time. But the difference is the Leafs haven't been able to chip away successfully at really rounding out their defense, and it's even thinner now than it probably was in years past. So they've got a lot of work to do, and the tough part for them is they don't have assets. They're not overflowing with cap space. They've got some flexibility with the John Klingberg LTIR, and they've got so many holes to plug that it's like, how could we possibly begin to address this all in one deadline? Should we try and do that? Or instead of throwing good assets after bad, unless we can really hit a home run, maybe we just sit pat. Uh, Frank Saravelli of Daily Faceoff on the line with us uh, on the fan pregame. Uh, it's Mark Andre Fleury night in Minnesota. That's on Sportsnet, Sportsnet East, Sportsnet Pacific with the Pittsburgh Penguins in town. Of course, it seems like it's a day, uh, yearly occurrence that Mark Andre Fleury's name comes up uh, right about now. Uh, is there an opportunity, another opportunity for Marc-Andre Fleury potentially to move to a contender before the deadline. There is. And, you know, I don't think that discussion has begun just yet as someone that holds all the cards, but I can tell you that what Marc-Andre Fleury is looking for, if he does decide to move and by the way, a pretty unreal stat, 17 year consecutive playoff streak. Like I don't think he has any designs on Mm. that ending just yet. Um, that he wants to play. He wants to contribute. You know, one of the most well-liked characters in the NHL, he he doesn't want to come to a team and just sit there and smile and open the door on the bench. He thinks he's got lots of game left. The Wild have asked him to do a lot this year when Philip Gustafson has been out. And if he's going somewhere, if he agrees to waive, it's going to be for a team that has opportunity. And whether that's in a place like Colorado where – 
their GM, Chris McFarlane, has been really clear that Alexander Georgiev needs to play less, which would open, you know, some window of opportunity for Flurry down the stretch, whether it's a place in Carolina where Antti Ranta just got hurt, Freddie Anderson is still working his way back, and Kochetkov has dealt with a concussion, or whether it's in a place like New Jersey or somewhere else that's trying to get back in the race. There's seemingly lots of different options for him. And the cost, really, at this point, considering a few years ago he went for a second-round pick, it shouldn't be prohibitive in any way. It's really just a matter of marrying up opportunity with someone that wants it. All right, let's do a little bit of an intervention for some of our Canadian clubs. Winnipeg, 0-4-1 in the last five. Power play, been bad all year. Struggle to score goals. Vancouver had a big one, and they laid an egg. People thought it might have been... a Cup preview, maybe not just yet. Are there reason for optimism in those two markets and or do you see them being players at the deadline to fortify things? I I see no reason but optimism in those two markets. Uh, I do have some concern about Winnipeg's ability to score as well as they've defended. And, you know, I don't think they're going to have too many five-game stretches like this one where they give up four or more three times that streak that they were on was incredible. Um, I, I do think the Sean Monahan addition is going to pay big dividends for them at the bumper position on the power play where you mentioned they've struggled. They're on an O for 14 run right now uh, with the man advantage. And you think at some point the changes that they make there, that'll happen. As mentioned though, the goal scoring stands out. They've got a, a you know fewer goals scored this year than a bunch of non-playoff teams, which is certainly of concern, but their depth, their goaltending, um the way that they play their structure, I think, you know, they've got to be really set up for the playoffs and they are. And and Van, I don't understand why there's been so much consternation over one game. You know, people felt like maybe the Bruins exposed the Canucks a little bit. I don't see that at all. I see a team that's motored along all season long, has been incredibly consistent. Everyone's been waiting for the bounce, waiting for the dip for them to fall off. And it it's not happening. I don't see it happening. They're too talented. They're too strong. And this Lindholm addition makes them that much stronger. So I think both those teams could maybe fortify in a small way um, on defense, you know, by adding someone in a depth role, but, for the most part, both of those teams having traded those first-round picks have already got a lot of their shopping done. Yeah, it wasn't a great loss uh, that the Canucks suffered uh, against the Boston Bruins, but it gives Rick Tockett another opportunity to coach, and I think he likes that. He gets the opportunity to drive home the message uh, once again. You drove home the message with us today, Frank. Thanks for joining us on a Friday. Uh, delayed start to the weekend, but now go ahead. Enjoy your Super Bowl weekend. Hope you have fun on Sunday. Have a good one, guys. That's Frank Saravelli of DailyFaceOff.com. Uh, Just a reminder, Canada's women's basketball team is playing an Olympic qualifying tournament. They are in a group of four teams. Top three teams in the group qualify for the summer's Olympic Games in Paris. After two games, the group is, or they're one and one. Uh, Every team is one and one in the group, so it comes down to the last game. Sunday morning on Sportsnet, Canada plays Japan 8.50 a.m. Eastern, 5.50 a.m. Of course, Pacific, again, on Sportsnet. If Canada win, they go to the Olympics and joining the men. Of course, they've already punched their ticket. Just another note on the Raptors game, which is on Sportsnet tonight. Olinik and Abaji are available. Doesn't mean they'll play, but the newest Raptors uh, after the trade with the Utah Jazz available tonight for Darko Ryakovich. Love it. That's going to be good. Uh, uh, looking forward to seeing those guys. Obviously, Olinik, 
Uh, looking forward to seeing him in Paris as well. Uh, it's going to be really interesting uh, seeing how that team comes together, and that'll be the main event kind of in a lot of ways in the summer. Uh, but it'll be cool if Alinek and Abaji get in tonight, if we see something from those guys um, against the Houston Rockets tonight. Uh, we got about a minute. We talked about Abaji and Olenek yesterday. What do you want to see from the Raptors the rest of the season? Because, like, you know, play in, probably not, not on the table. Falling back, no one really wants to see that. Is there something that is really, really key in about 30 seconds of what we got to see to feel good going into the offseason? Well, I wanted to follow up on the men being the uh, main event in the Summer Olympics. I wanted your, your big board on Olympic events. But it, to me, it's all about R&D, research and development. The, the wins, the losses, at this point, do they matter? No. Uh, is Scotty continuing to grow on both ends of the floor? And what pieces fit around him? That means quickly with higher usage rate. That means RJ being uh, a menace on both ends. It's all about how the pieces fit around Scotty. It'll be nice if Olenek uh, seamlessly fits yeah. in with Scotty Barnes because then you can feel more comfortable about signing him to an extension this offseason. Super Bowl 58 this weekend. We'll chat about it with Chris Rose after the break. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back up on the fan pregame. Sportsnet 360, Sportsnet 590, the fan Super Bowl 58 this weekend. Uh, and we got to go back to Vegas. We got a direct line to Vegas. We're going back to Vegas. Donovan will critique my big board of picks. Yes, sir. Uh, after we catch up with Chris Rose of the NFL Network and the Chris Rose rotation. Chris, how's Vegas? How's it going? I'll let you know when I get there. Oh, not in Vegas. The direct line did no. not take us to Vegas. Okay, so why the delayed the direct start? Line, no, you, you overshot the runway. So it's still in Los Angeles, but I will be there by the game. Okay. My job is to host host the post game on the field. So I better I better be there for that one. Listen, we cast a line and we still found you, which was uh, the most important thing. Okay, so NFL honors last night uh, was in Vegas uh, and a couple surprises, which is a little bit different than what you're expecting, right? Like in bet, with betting lines and with so much information, social media, social media, you kind of know who's going to win these awards generally, but it seemed like there were a couple surprises with Joe Flacco winning comeback player of the year and Kevin Stefanski winning coach of the year. A couple Browns maybe upsetting the apple cart just a little bit. Were you expecting those results? And uh, do you have any issue with either of those results? No, I do think the league probably missed an opportunity here. Um, with the comeback player of the year because of the special circumstances, right? Surrounding DeMar Hamlin, they probably just could have named the award after him and had him then present the first ever DeMar Hamlin comeback player of the year. I mean, we knew he was, he was the comeback player of the year based on what transpired. Right. And that is something we just hope we never see ever again. But once again, I think it would have been a good opportunity to kind of shine the light on the importance of learning about those techniques and, and reaffirming that every NFL stadium is equipped to pull off that maneuver if we ever need it again. So I think that that probably is the way it should have gone. As far as on the field goes, I mean, I, you could have made an argument for Baker Mayfield uh, having a remarkable year. Um, but, you know, what Joe Flacco did, I guess, getting off the couch and then leading the Browns to the playoffs was was pretty impressive. Uh, as far as Stefanski goes, you have to remember these 
votes are taken prior to the playoffs. So you almost have to wash your memory after week 18 because it, you know, I think the easy thing would have been to say, well, D'Amico Ryan's beat Kevin Stefanski's Browns. Well, Stefanski started five different quarterbacks. Um, I don't believe that any other team this year came close to that. And certainly, no, you know, usually if you have to start three, your season's wrecked. Uh, that was not the case for the Browns. And, um, yes, I'm a Cleveland fan, but I think, you know, listen, had D'Amico Ryan's won it, I wouldn't have been like, oh, my God, what a travesty. It's just, it was a, the guys got the same number of points. The fans got one more first place vote. That was the difference. Speaking of those awards, production value was high. It was a show in the city of shows. And the NFL owners really year over year has improved. But it represented this entire Super Bowl week thus far in Vegas leading up to its first game. I feel like Vegas right now is like my child at dinner, like eating his vegetables being on good behavior because he wants dessert. With the Super Bowl being there and so many big events being there recently, Vegas has to be high in the rotation now of go-to Super Bowl spots, no? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I think the only way that you'll get into the rotation of Los Angeles, Miami, uh, New Orleans, Phoenix, is if you end up, you know, having a new stadium and sufficient enough hotel space in that town you know we've seen places like uh minneapolis get in there indianapolis got in you know what what is it now a decade plus ago you know 12 years ago uh so play in new york got in there obviously places like that will hop in if there's a new facility that that pops up um but other than that you're going to see the same four or five cities is my guess next year we go down back down to new orleans for the first time since Super Bowl 47. Then we head back to San Francisco, I believe, uh, Santa Clara technically, and then we go back to Los Angeles. So a lot of it's staying on the West Coast, and that's where it's been the last several years. Okay, so you'll make it down there before the game, fingers crossed. Um, What is the best thing about being there for the Super Bowl? Best thing about covering a Super Bowl? What are you looking forward to the most? Even though this is, you know, un- uncharted territory for you in terms of, hey, they've hosted a Super, they've never hosted a Super Bowl in Vegas before. But when you get down there, and I guess normal, typical fare in terms of Super Bowl uh, events and activities, like what are you looking for the most when you get down there? Just the end of the game. I mean, that is, in my opinion, it's the best two hours that we have on our network all year, just because of what the day means, right? It's, it's guys realizing their childhood dream and it's not about business. It's not about big business. It's not about money. It's about these guys realizing the journey they took. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that I get to host that with Maurice Jones, Drew and Michael Robinson. And we'll have all the coverage. We'll have all the players from either the chiefs or the Niners. And it is just, so much fun it's the fastest two hours that we'll have all year and i love every aspect of that the rest of it the going out the party like i've done that that sort of stuff um i've done a lot of that in vegas too so that that sort of stuff doesn't it's just the game and the results which is the most fun for me now being field level you get a unique perspective of the yin and the yang of being in a big game post game and seeing not just the players with the confetti coming down 
with the families and the kids. Give me your best story of, of watching that emotion play out live. Might have been a couple of years ago, actually, when uh, I don't know if you remember this, when Eric Weddle, like right when the playoffs started, I believe, joined the Rams, That's right? right. And he hadn't played all year, but he had a really, really good career with the Chargers and the Ravens and just couldn't get over that hump. Well, they had some injuries there in the secondary. They called him. They're like, are you in shape? And he's like, yep, I'm ready to go. He was always the guy who knew exactly where to be. The question was, could his body at that point still get it done? And um, he got out there. I believe he actually got injured in the game, if I'm not mistaken. But he and his family were all there. I think he had four kids. And he just kind of wandered over at the beginning of our show in between Joe Thomas and myself. And he was like, can you believe this happened? Like I was literally sitting on the couch doing nothing three weeks ago. And now I'm a Super Bowl champion. And I just think that that's, that's all part of the story. Uh, Nick Foles at the end of Super Bowl 52 was on our set next to Doug Peterson and telling us about how close he was to quitting because he just felt like he had lost his zest for playing this sport. And this is not one sport you want to go out at half-ass, right? You can't do that. You will get injured very quickly or get somebody else injured. And he just said he was so close to saying, that's it, I'm done. He gets a call and he ends up going back to Philly eventually and not, not expecting to play, but he replaced an injured Carson Wentz and then climbs the mountaintop. And I just thought you could see it in his eyes, how shocking even to himself that journey was so let's go a little bit behind the current post game people are everywhere there are asks of the players all over the place and so i'm sure your crew has a runner just getting players to come to the desk or when you guys are in a high profile spot sometimes the players just come on their own give me the the name of someone that people who haven't been watching as closely throughout the year uh, the name they're going to learn and that you guys are going to be talking to on that desk, that, that X-factor person that could become a household name given the Super Bowl so big. Well, if the Chiefs win again, uh, I think, listen, people know his name, but they probably, he's definitely not the first Chief you think of, and that is Legereus Sneed, the, um, the cornerback who's about to be a free agent. I don't know if they're going to let him get out of there. I would expect them to tag him at the very least if they don't work out a long-term deal. But he is a guy that has just blossomed, and he's continued to grow in that position. And on a really young defense, it's basically Chris Jones and him in terms of the guys that have now been around for a little while. And he made, let's remember, he made the play of the playoffs for that team. AFC Championship, the Ravens were down 10. They were driving. Zay Flowers dives to the end zone and Sneed's the one that punches it out. And that was probably the game-turning play, because if the Ravens get within three, that place gets loud. The Chiefs didn't do anything offensively in the second half. Who knows where we end up from there? Um, but I just think based on where he is, where he's going with his career, and what he did in the AFC title game, if he's able to shut down Ayuk and Debo, look out. Uh, Chris Rose of the NFL Network on the line ahead of Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas. Uh, in your postgame show, there's a good chance, 
or there's a decent chance, or there's at least a chance uh, that if you catch up with Travis Kelsey, you'll be looking back and reflecting on the entirety of his career. I, I don't know if it's his swan song in Super Bowl 58. Uh, there could be many more years and good years to come. Um, but let's play the hypothetical if if Kelsey decides to walk out that door. What is it, you know, the legacy's already set, so I won't ask you about him. But what to, what happens to the Kansas City Chiefs uh, in a world where Travis Kelsey's no longer playing football? Oof, that's a great question. Um, I do like Rasheed Rice an awful lot. I mean, a ton. I think that his development over the second half of the season and now into the playoffs has been substantial, and you can certainly understand why they traded up in the second round to go get him. But, I mean, the weakness of that team is who's going to catch it consistently outside of Kelsey and Rice? And so that's been a problem. And they they know they're going to, you know, like they've built up this defense so that it has, in my opinion, uh, become the more way more consistent side of the football for them. Patrick Mahomes needs help. And I really, to me, guys, it's, it's why this story, like, when if Mahomes wins Sunday, I think we're all just going to be like, yep, he did it again, three and five years, 28 years old. It's remarkable. Like, no, I think we have to take a big step back here. I don't think there's any other quarterback who comes close to leading that offense to the Super Bowl. I just really don't think. He has played nearly flawless football uh, since the start of that Miami game in the wild card round. Um so he can do it, but they're going to have to find him. You know, if he loses his best friend in terms of pass catching, yeah. they're going to have to. They're going to have to draft. They might have to sign a couple guys. Like this won't be easy. And by the way, this is unlike last year. This is not a deep tight end draft at all. Fascinating. You mentioned Mahomes, and listen, people will come for me certainly. Um, but when we have the GOAT conversation, which we we have to because this is what we do in sports, Brady's career stands alone. I, I don't know if anyone other than maybe Mahomes will, will touch the amount of championships. We're talking about it being a big deal when quarterbacks got three or four. I mean, he almost doubled that. But in terms of level of play, I don't think I've ever seen someone play the position at such a high level in different ways. For you, is he at that place where we're changing the way we look at the position because of what he's done in a way that we didn't necessarily when we were watching Tom Brady in his prime? Yeah, I mean, there have been guys who have played. I mean, listen, I grew up having John Elway rip out my Browns Hmm. heart. And... Elway, now, if people go back and look at the stats, they'll say, well, no, no, hold on. It's not close to Mahomes. That's not fair because the game was so significantly different, right? I mean, he I don't know exactly what his completion percentage was, but I'm going to guess it was high 50s for his career, maybe 60% um, ops, but it probably wasn't. Uh, but once again, that's because the game has changed. So I would equate Elway and Mahomes in terms of their ability to throw, throw on the run, be creative, utilize their legs when they needed to, all sorts of stuff. But, see, I think I disagree a little bit with you. I think we can get to the Mahomes-Brady discussion well before 
Mahomes has five or six rings. I, I really do. Be- because the quarter, why is it that only the quarterback position we just care about rings? Why is that it? But I just told you that I'm, I can't believe he helped get the Chiefs here. I know this is as far and away his best defense that he's had, but he has pretty much single-handedly carried this offense at this point. And um, if he's able to get a third one by the age of 28, it's amazing. It is amazing. Now, the thing that, that differentiates Brady from the rest is obviously winning into your 40s. I mean, what was he, 44, the, the, you know, the last one? That is remarkable. But the way that Mahomes plays, like when we talk about the greatest pass rusher in the history of the sport, give it to me just off the top of your head. Reggie White, one ring. Bruce Smith, no rings. So we don't say Charles Haley because he's got five rings, is the greatest pass rusher. Like, he's great. He's a Hall of Famer. But he never comes up in the discussion as greatest, even though he's got the most rings. So why do we put that in strictly in the quarterback discussion? It's a great point. We don't say Bill Russell's better than Michael Jordan because he has no, no rings. We, we just we don't. Never. So walk there with me. Put put your name on it. I, I think Mahomes is the best at the position I've ever seen. If he wins this, his third, are you willing to say you, Chris Rose, are anointing Patrick Mahomes the GOAT? Uh, not yet, but I would put him right next to I, – I mean, I saw Montana's entire career, and I thought nobody could touch him. But I, I do think that Mahomes is playing the position once again in the day and age that we're in. Like I, I think Montana would have carved up defenses today. Just the way you can't hit guys uh, and the way you can't uh, stop the progress of receivers. I think he just his numbers would have been off the charts. Great. So, And same with Marino. But with what we're dealing with, I would say that Mahomes is I mean, Tom, don't look too far behind you because he's right there is what I would say. Right there. With a lot of runway left on the career, uh, of course. Okay, so let's get to the game here, Chris. Uh, you know, when you see it play out in your head, I'm not sure who you see the ball uh, or who having the ball last or how the score will end up uh, figuring out. Um, but when you look at the matchups and all the little intricacies of the game, the minutia, you look at every single matchup, is there one matchup or one situation on the field where the other team just doesn't have an answer for the other? And that could simply be that the 49ers won't have an answer for Patrick Mahomes. But is there somewhere, and that could be the answer, somewhere on the field where it's just not a fair fight? Well, I'll tell you this. You know, we spent a lot of time, and deservedly so, talking about Trent Williams. I mean, he's the first ballot Hall of Famer, no question. When they run left, like, look out. I would hate to be a defensive back on that side when he's pulling. But the rest of the line stinks. I mean, it's not good. And Colton McKivitz is a guy who's a right tackle and has struggled at times. Chris Jones, even though he's a defensive tackle, goes wide a lot of times, uh, you know, and on third down. So they're either going to have to give him a lot of help against Chris Jones, or Chris Jones could eat him alive. That would be a major, major problem. Um, one other thing I would say is that if San Francisco has any hope in this game, in my opinion, 
their defensive front has got to play significantly better than it has. It, even toward the end of the regular season, it was leaking oil. And here in the two playoff games against the Packers and the Lions, they've been, I mean, kind of bad, to be honest with you. I hate to use that word because mm-hmm. the defense as a whole for most of the season was excellent. But they're giving up 70 more yards per game on the ground in the playoffs in the regular season. They're not applying pressure with four, which is what they like to do. They do not like to blitz a lot of the time. Um, Nick Bose is the only guy who's got a sack in the playoffs. They need, whether it's Javon Hargrave, who's a really, really good player. Chase Young's been a mess. I mean, that guy's been horrible against the run. He doesn't really get to the passer. And if you're about to be a free agent, why not go show it on the world's biggest stage? I need to see something out of that defensive front. Yeah, there's been some ugly uh, videos going around on Twitter with Chase Young's effort and just not looking like a player who's interested in earning that contract uh, as you laid out. It sounds like you might like the Chiefs in this game. Uh, is that a fact? I I got them by a field goal in part because I also am terrified of what's going on with Moody, mm. the rookie kicker. You know, they took a chance replacing a veteran. I know that Robbie Gold's leg, obviously, he doesn't boot it the way he used to. But you know how many kicks he has missed in his postseason career? I believe it's two now, no? Oh, no, I'm talking about Robbie Gold. Oh, Robbie Gold, no. About. Yeah, Robbie Gold has missed zero. Wow. Zero yeah. in the playoffs. PATs and field goals. So, um Yeah. I, I hate to put the uh, the kibosh on kickers. I hate doing that. It's not fun because I, I do not want it to come down to that. I just, ugh. And there's nothing worse than talking about at the end of a game a missed kick. When Tyler Bass missed that kick against the Chiefs, I was like, oh, man, seriously, Buffalo, wide right. Like, why do we have to do this? But we had to. We had to talk about it. So that was a pretty, pretty big decision made by uh, the Niners. And... Man, am I going to have to bring up Robbie Gold's name Sunday? I don't want to have to. Uh, you might have to on that two-hour show uh, based on how Jake Movie has kicked the ball uh, so far in this postseason. Uh, Chris, it was a lot of fun catching up with you. Uh, get to Vegas safe and enjoy the game a- and the two hours afterwards. I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, so right when the trophy ceremony's done, flip on over to NFL Network, pick us up in your streaming, wherever, you're, wherever you live in your streaming world. We'll be there for a couple hours. Just hang out with us. Thank you. Perfect. We'll be there. That's Chris Rose of the NFL Network uh, on his way to Vegas shortly. Uh, The Jake Moody analysis leads us perfectly into best bets. I'm going to let you break down my entire big board after we talk to Smith & Jones from Scotiabank Arena to tee up Fred Van Fleet's return to Toronto. But let's get to the new bets and your bet. I'm going to let you lead the dance here because you're going to be talking about an Usher song. I am. Listen, there's been a lot of talk this week about exactly what does Usher close with, what does Usher start with, and there's a lot of early uh, talk and money on, yeah, which was the favorite. I'm going in a different direction. I'm going my way. A couple reasons. And I'm not going to lie, I cheated off of someone else's test. <laughs> Mark Boffo uh, came on the check down and broke this oh, the down. Daddy. He did. He's, he's an Usher expert. Okay. And he brought up some great points. One, Usher's resident... His residency in Las Vegas starts with my way. Number two, on the way here, played me a little Usher Essentials playlist. 
23 seconds is the intro. So you think about the start of the open. Lights, cameras flashing. You don't just start singing right away. You need set, the reveal. So you're going to hear Jermaine Dupri first. You're going to hear Usher second. I like My Way as his first song. Also, it's a great track. Uh, another thing that helps that steam, money, steam on Yeah to be the last song has come in recently over the last 24, 48 hours, I think. So Yeah was definitely one that people, it's the, the most recognizable Usher song, I would say. Uh, and one that he could have led with it because it's, you know, a little bit more upbeat and get everyone's attention. But apparently that will be the last song. So that clears the way for my way to be the first pick. Uh, and it's partly Mark Boffo, part Donovan Bennett. These are things I think way too much about. Yeah, has some features. You're not going to bring people in the beginning. You're going to bring them in the end. Sprinkle a little money on You Don't Have to Call, another big song with a long intro. Mm. But uh, again, if I'm an expert in anything, it's things that nobody cares about. <laughs> okay, we got a minute. Uh, again, my whole big board will be discussed at length a little bit later on in the show. But got to get to Jake Moody to miss a field goal plus 250 uh, as a great segue from uh, Chris Rose just now talking about how Jake Moody could be an X factor in the game. I also like Christian McCaffrey to score both a rushing and receiving touchdown plus 600. And we'll get to that in a little bit later. Most receptions in the game, Travis Kelsey plus 140. Most receiving yards in the game. Rasheed Rice plus 300. So four more added to the board. Not sure if I have about 12, but of those four, which one's got your attention? CMC to score two different ways is big. One, he's had a little bit of a shoulder injury. Is he going to stay in the game? Uh, and two, are they going to score more than two times against a very good That is Chiefs a good point. Uh, uh, the reason I like it, I think Kyle Shanahan has trust issues. Kyle Shanahan has big spot issues, right? And if yes. Kyle Shanahan doesn't trust other guys to do things for him, well, we know he trusts Christian McCaffrey. And I think maybe in multiple ways, CMC could score in this game. It's Fred's return to Scotiabank Arena, and we will tee it up with Smith & Jones after the break on the Fan Preakin'.